All right. Welcome back, everybody. I guess we'll consider this season two of the PhD podcast. Arjeev and I have been on a little bit of a hiatus the last couple months. Just uh, some of us are moving. We're finishing up some some PhD obligations, but we're back. We have a very special guest on with us today, Adam Virgil, uh, second year PhD student at the University of Vermont. I know some of our listeners are probably familiar with some of Adam's work, specifically his infographics and his Excel tutorials. Uh, which have been extremely helpful for the sports science community. I know I've watched a lot of his videos and I know a lot of other people have. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Adam, the PhD student, and some of the research that he's doing right now and some of his previous work. Adam, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate you uh, being on with us. Thanks for having me. No, no, it's a pleasure. It's great to talk with you guys. So, Adam, we just want to kind of get right into it. Uh, this is a question, you know, we ask, uh, we just ask everybody, you know, their background, kind of what led them to their their PhD journey at this point. If you could just tell the listeners who aren't familiar with with yourself. Uh, for sure. I'll, I'll start way back in, in high school when, uh, so I played a lot of sports growing up in high school and I was really interested. I also worked in a weight room as well and saw what people were doing in there and how they were getting more fit, stronger, and that translated to what they were doing on the field because I played with a lot of them. And then I had a passion to work in sports from getting out of high school. That started with athletic training. So I went to Springfield College for a year and I kind of quickly figured out that athletic training wasn't for me. Um, I wanted to be more on the performance performance enhancement side. So then I transferred over to the University of Vermont and I studied exercise and movement science. And right after that, I was really fortunate and got hired by the New York Rangers hockey team. And that's when I kind of got into sports science stuff uh, because they were collecting a lot of information. And that was really interesting. I wasn't taught about a lot of that stuff in school. And as I continued through that path and learning about pro sport, uh, there were a lot of questions that I had about everything going on, why we made decisions that we made and a variety of other things, what a lot of the data meant, how um, the processes could be improved. Cause I know for myself at the beginning, I was spending a lot of time doing a lot of things and it seemed kind of repetitive at times. So with that being said, I wanted to answer those questions and I wanted to figure out better ways to do things. So a couple of years before I left uh, the Rangers, I coordinated a PhD at the University of Vermont. And the program is in human functioning and rehabilitation sciences, but it was more about the location than anything else. My girlfriend and I, we made a decision to move to Vermont. Um, That's where she's from. That's where, you know, I went to undergrad. And I also had a professor there who got me the job with the Rangers that I wanted to do research with um, to pay him back um, and tell him about my experiences and work with him. So there's no like sports science stuff going on at the school, but I knew that this professor and I, we could figure out our way because he found finagled a way to kind of get some of that stuff done. And he unfortunately uh, passed away not too long ago unexpectedly, but that's where I'm, I'm still kind of going down that path and pursuing the sports sports science route and trying to answer the questions that I had um, from pro, from the pro sport environment. So kind of trailblazing your own path at Vermont, it sounds like. Because they really didn't have much of a sports science. Trying to. That's go. awesome. Yeah, that's the way to do it. That's awesome, man. Um, you, you sent us a, a really interesting article um, 
from 2001 and, and we'll link it in the, the notes, but the title was a new approach to, to monitoring exercise training. Uh, can you, can you tell us why you chose this article and how it pertains to your specific uh, research interest? Uh, yeah, certainly. So I guess uh, the, to frame the article a little bit, I believe the authors talk about like endurance athletes using volume or kilometers ran as, as training load. And that's a really practical way of quantifying training load for, for those athletes. Um, but it kind of ignores the, the repeated high intensity bouts that team sport athletes go through. And then there are other measures that could be used to quantify um, that type of training load, such as uh, a measure called TRIMP, which is training impulse. It requires a heart rate monitor and it takes into consideration the duration of the exercise and the time that you spend in different heart rate zones. But wearing a heart rate monitor not only is sometimes impractical and expensive, but also the TRIMP score that, that you get may not really coincide with the, the effort put through through activities like weight training and plyometrics and high intensity activities. So this paper is kind of about quantifying training load. And this guy, Carl Foster, he created this session RPE method and RPE or rating of perceived exertion was around before Carl Foster. There's a guy named Gunnar Borg who used RPE, but the big difference between them was Gunnar Borg collected this information momentarily. I believe while he worked with patients who had heart complications uh, to uh, monitor ongoing exercise intensity so that he knew when to cease exercise to reduce the risk that he would potentially harm them, you know, with, with the exercise. Whereas Foster said, you know, this isn't really practical with, with team sport athletes either. I mean, if you think about it right now, like imagine a strength and conditioning coach or anybody running onto the field every couple minutes, asking all the players how hard they're trying and running back to the sidelines. Um, so he said, you know, maybe let's just try to make this a global rating of the, of the entire session. So the paper is, is about um, going through the validity of that method compared with uh, the trim score and seeing whether or not it's, it can tell you not more or less the same information, but whether or not there's a relationship between those two things and RPE could be used as a measure of exercise intensity. And like, I, so this is just a little caveat uh, with the paper in that the RPE or the session RPE is just a rating um, of exercise intensity from one to 10. And then you multiply that by duration in minutes to make it comparable to a trim score. Because like I said before, uh, the trim score includes the intensity and duration components of exercise. And why this is important to me is because it's practical and I want to look deeper into perceptive measures in the relationship with sports specific performance outcomes. And, and I'm starting with RP and Foster's work. And this paper is in this paper is just an example of Foster's work. Um, it's kind of the, it's been the primary driver of RP related research um, that we know and use today. So it's kind of a foundational paper in looking at RP and its relation to anything related to exercise and sport. Adam, just a, a kind of a follow-up question. How is, has the RPE literature in terms of monitoring exercise intensity changed from this paper from Foster 2001? Like, has there been any changes to it? Or is it your standard, like one to 10 kind of thing? Uh, it, th there have been some changes, like changes is, is a tough word that people have tried different things with it. Um, for example, they've tried with scales that range from one to a hundred or zero to a hundred to increase the granularity of the measure. 
Uh, they've also there are also other RPE type uh, scales out there. The and what the research has mainly done is just gone through validity and then relationships with this RPE method and injury and performance and different things. Uh, but although the re- I don't want to say the research on that scale hasn't changed, but the methods used in practice have changed dramatically. So when Foster, I don't know this for a fact, I don't know if it's, it was ever specified, but Foster, I believe collected it using like on a piece of paper, I imagine um, in black and white ink and someone like marks off what it is. Right. And that's what their RPE score is. But today, first of all, we deliver everything using technology. And secondly, because technology has advanced so drastically or so dramatically, practitioners are able to customize these forms and make them into things that look very different than the validated form. So adding colors, making them slider scales, hiding verbal anchors that were existing on the, on the validated form and various other things have changed in practice. Um, so I guess that's kind of the big thing that's, that's changing. Yeah. No, and that could potentially change the the validity of the of the scale itself by you know adding colors and removing anchors from the what's been validated in the research setting. Exactly, and that's kind of what I'm. Well, to talk a little bit about my PhD, at first I was like, I just want to look at perceptive measures and how they coincide with performance. And after after having discussions with um, a lot of really smart people like Franco and Pilizzeri, um He's like, what the heck are you doing? Like, you got to figure out whether whether or not the scale is valid first. Because I'm right. talking to him about this scale, like using technology and colors. So now I'm like taking 50 steps back and just trying to figure out whether or not um, you can't test every version of of every scale that's used by practitioners. Uh, like, because the customizability, there are so many different options. But I chose um, a version of a scale that I felt represented um, the features that practitioners typically apply to to their novel scales today. And I'm just assessing whether or not that's measuring exercise intensity, just like Foster's was. So collecting trim like Foster did and comparing the scale um, or the ratings on that scale multiplied by session duration with um, the trim scores, just to see whether or not they're measuring close to the same thing or not. Right. Right. So in this paper by Foster, they were measuring the exercise intensity. I think it was around 30 minutes after the, after exercise, I guess, kind of Adam from like a feasibility standpoint, like what, what are your thoughts on that? I guess question to you is if I wanted to get a global scale of session RP, when would be the best time to do it? Is that 30 minutes a good time or is it kind of immediately afterwards? Cause that's kind of where I'm, trained and we would ask like RP and stuff, we'd go kind of like immediately afterwards, but is there like a recency effect there potentially like a bias there or what are just, what are your general thoughts on that? I'm not super familiar with the research on that, but I know that Foster talked about a recency bias and I know that I, I know that other people have too. I personally wouldn't ask it right after. Um, I would, but you don't have to ask it exactly 30 minutes after either. Cause there is, research out there which has compared uh asking it 30 minutes after versus asking it 24 hours after the session and they're quite similar so uh, so i think that i think that the the key to it all is avoiding that initial period right after exercise because you're going to if extra if the session was really really easy the entire time and then 
all of a sudden you're doing sprints at the end and they're really tiring and then you have to do RPE. Um, I see that, well, I feel that that could affect um, the rating. I'm sure that there is literature on it. I just don't know of it. Whereas, you know, once you have time to kind of cool down a little bit and think about the session as a whole, um, let things clear your head, then you can give a more accurate representation of the session um, entirely. And to put, to add another layer onto this is we're talking about training right now, I'm, I'm assuming, but imagine competition. If you ask someone right after a competition, imagine all the different things that could be impacting their score, especially if you ask them right after, did we lose the game? Did we win the game? How did I feel I played? You know, th those things, number one, they probably, I don't know this for a fact, but they vary between individuals. Like if I played really crappy, it might take me five hours. It might take me a night's sleep to like get that, trying to get over that, right. um, how I played and give a, a good representation of the exercise intensity, which has, should have nothing to do with, with how I felt I played or whether the team won or lost. Right. So there are other things to consider um, around competition as well. And you want to be, I don't want to say you want to be, but I want to be consistent with, with the timing um, of those questionnaires so that I can compare apples to apples. Right. Adam, you mentioned this very briefly um, when you were answering one of the questions I had, it was just kind of a follow-up with I, in an ideal setting, how can RPE be used in terms of performance monitoring and injury risk? Cause at the end of the day, like that's the big thing, right? We want to enhance performance and we want to reduce the risk of injury. Like how would, how would you use RP to kind of hit both of those topics for, from an athletic development standpoint? That's okay. That, that's a really big question. I'm just going to pick one example because it's what sure. I'm kind of focusing on right now. Sure, sure. Um, well, first, first and foremost is if you're able to quantify what's going on in your environment from, I'm just going to say training load, right? It could be right. sets, sex reps, like whatever it is, if you're able to quantify what's going on in your environment and have, have RP, you're going to be able to understand changes in how someone is responding to the stimuli. Um, just very vague general answer. Um, but to give a more specific answer, I like seeing the relationship between RP and an objective measure of training load and how those two track over time together. And what I mean by that is in my research right now, um, with the ice hockey athletes, uh, you play back-to-back -back games. And this is something I also saw when I was with the Rangers because we didn't collect data during games. There are no wearables allowed during NHL games. So my, I had to give players, like let's say I wanted to look at training load over the past three days for an NHL player and two of those days were games. I can't give them zeros because if I did, the players that the players that play in games generally don't have as high practice loads as the players that don't. So it's just a total misrepresentation of what's going on. I need to somehow simulate, um, simulate that information or simulate an estimation of that information. So with Hartford, I looked at back to back, they play three and threes, which is back to back to back games. Right, right, right. What you typically see um, from a heart rate perspective, we didn't collect RPE. But what you'll see is, you know, game one is up here, like high game two is, a little bit lower game three is even lower and to me i i'm not smart enough to know what all that means but i my sense tells me is that they're trying just as hard but they're physiologically not able to produce because of acute fatigue right so with uh with uvm we're actually looking at this stuff and we're collecting rp and what we're seeing is rp is con constant between uh back-to-back -back games but we still see that shrimp drop off oh, wow. so to me if I look at the relationship between 
contact like in, in specific situations, if I look at the, the difference between or the relationship between RPE and TRIMP or an objective training measure and how that tracks over time, it could give me insight into if and when a, there is acute fatigue present and we know that neuromuscular uh, dysregulation um, can can occur uh, with with acute fatigue present. So that not saying that that in, automatically increases injury risk, but it gives you insight into how the body is, is responding to everything, um, which may help you make some better decisions in effort to reduce the potential to to get hurt um, with with the training decisions that you're making. That's really no, that's great stuff, Adam. Thanks, I really appreciate you. I know, I know, I kind of really threw a tough question at you, but no, th- thanks for the insight. It's very, it's very good, very valuable information. So, as a, as a follow up to that, I know we discussed this a little bit by email, but um, if if then if you could create sort of like your own method uh, for for exercise monitoring for any particular setting of your choosing, uh, what would it what would it look like? So. This is, again, this is super, super hard. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to say that for me, it's an impossible question to answer. <laughs> e- e- even if I have the setting of, of my choosing, um, th- I just want to bring up a couple of questions that kind of are, are coming through my head um, when I think about the question. It's like, the first question is like, what information do the key stakeholders need to do their jobs to the best of their abilities? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is person and, and context dependent because um, I'm not the only one making decisions with this information. Right. Then what technology is available to me? Like what's the budget like? Um, What's the validity and reliability of the equipment um, that I have access to? Like what's the team culture like? How are the athletes going to respond um, to this? How are coaches going to respond to this? Um, And then what what help do I have? So am am I alone at at going about this this endeavor? And also how how trustworthy are the athletes regarding the – reliable operation of, of the technology. Like, for example, if I had had my athletes run, um, I said, all right, in the, like, you're going to do like heavy trap bar deadlifts and you're going to run 10 meter sprints and you guys are going to have to operate this, this hardware and, and write down your numbers. I would have to have a sense for yeah. how capable they are of doing those things, yeah. um, to integrate certain, um, philosophies. Um, but as, as a generic answer, just <laughs> one thing that I think is really important that's undervalued that you get a lot of bang for your buck with is, is body weight. I want to know how body weight is tracking over time. Cause if someone's body weight is changing, that means that something is changing yeah. uh, physical activity levels, nutrition, combination of the two hormones. And that's, if you see body weight fluctuating um, dramatically day to day and, or it going on a trend that opens the door for a conversation um, to figure out whether or not number one, is that change beneficial? And it, is it intentional? And if we dive a little bit deeper into that, if I'm able to collect body weight pre and post exercise, great. That, that's even better because then that's a teaching tool for, for hydration um, and also potentially nutrition. Um, if you if we notice trends um, where an athlete says that they're hydrating and we're able to measure that they're hydrating, but they're still losing weight or they're still dropping weight and coming in at a lower weight than they than they ended at, then maybe there's a glycogen repletion issue going on because um, glycogen holds on to water and it's uh, heavy. So those, those are kind of my, my two, or I guess body weight is kind of my big thing. And I'm biased in this answer. So take it for what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 I like RPE. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's pretty practical. And in assuming that I'm alone, um, I'd, like to, I'd like to collect RPE just so I know how an athlete is, is responding. 
uh, to the training that's going on. That's awesome. Adam, you bring up some good points though, because it's, it's, a, it's something that athlete monitoring you really have to think about. It's not just buying a piece of technology and saying, okay, this is the latest and greatest, but having the resources, the support, and just the time to be able to do it. You know, it's, you bring up a good point bringing like a, you know, if you're just by yourself, you know, and you have to monitor 15 different athletes all wearing heart rate monitors, it might not necessarily be optimal for you. And especially if you're training the athletes and things like that. But you, so you bring up good points with, with them, the feasibility and really you have to think about, you know, what sort of outcome do you actually want before you go and just buy the latest and greatest and think, okay, now we're going to start monitoring our athletes. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I mean, some other things that, that I think are important is you want to try to get a sense for how they're performing in their sport specific environment, whatever that is. And to me, like I'm thinking of an example that to me, generally, if you're not asking them how they're, how they're performing, uh, involves collaboration with the coaching staff to some extent, at least to get, um, reliable information. And the reason why I say this is because, you know, you could have athletes wear heart rate monitors and GPS units and, and stuff, and you can monitor their, their, their training load. But if you want to know how they're adapting in their sports specific environment, you're going to have to have some consistency in the way that a practice goes or something. Like an example is, let's say that uh, heart rate recovery is important for ice hockey because, you know, the faster you can, you can recover, um, the faster you can get back on your next shift. Um, and, and, and perform at a, at a high capacity. Well, to understand an athlete's heart rate recovery on the ice, you can either, I don't know, have a standardized test that you run all the athletes through once a week, which will never happen in a pro sport environment. Right. Um, and, and, and monitor, and okay, now sit on the ice and, and we'll monitor your heart rate recovery for two minutes, but you have to collaborate with the coaching staff. Maybe there's a certain drill sequence that they like to run where there's a, um, there's a maximal intensity portion of it. And then, you know, with the coaching staff, maybe once a week or once every two weeks, they, they run this drill sequence that they're going to run anyways. Um, and you just build in, um, an area for, for that recovery time. And if you're using GPS or LPS units, um, a, a similar circumstance, maybe there's a maximal sprint effort, um, in, in a drill and you, that drill is you coordinate with the coaches to run that drill once every couple of weeks. And then you know what their maximum uh, sprint velocity is or uh, what their acceleration rate is or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, but in their practice environment. So it's, 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 it's having flow within, yeah. within the environment. It's flowing with it. It's not impeding the coaching staff or the players. That's, that's kind of the big takeaway. It's kind of like being in a weight room too. Like you design a weight room, you want to have flow within the facility. It's the same thing with extra sports science. You want to have flow within that. So you're not, you know, ruffling any feathers by stopping practice and be like, okay, you need to rest for two minutes. Like it's just not how it works. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to burden people. Yeah. Do everything yeah. that you can without burdening people. If you can do that, then, then great. Yeah. Um, that, that, that'll add a lot of value. Athletes won't care. Right. Exactly. So Adam, you mentioned this a little bit, but I just want to kind of bring it back up to the forefront. Uh, if you could just go in a little deeper about some of the current research that you're doing specifically at Vermont, I know we talked a little bit off air, but if you want to uh, tell the rest of the audience uh, kind of some of the stuff you're up to right now. Uh, yeah, certainly. So I'm, I'm still going through my coursework because that's how PhDs work in the United States. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I'm not here to, um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm um, 
I'm, I'm interested in how perceptive measures relate with sports-specific performance outcomes. And now they're kind of two big fish there, right? First is subject or uh, perceptive measures, and the second is sports-specific performance outcomes, which are each big animals in themselves. Right. Um, so what I'm trying to figure out is number one for the sports or for the perceived perceptive measures is how do we need to measure that stuff or how can we measure that stuff where it's compatible with technology it's scalable and it's also valid and reliable um just like foster's stuff and that's kind of a so when I, what i'm actually doing is i'm collecting rpe or what i did last year is i collected rpe um, and we collected the session durations and we collected uh, heart rate with uh, men's ice hockey team for all the games, all the practices. And one thing that I think is important, I don't want to, I don't want to, oh, I really don't want to go on a, go on a rant, uh, but okay. So <laughs> well, what we also collected was we asked the athletes after every game to ask or to rate their performance. And we also asked the coaches to rate the athletes performance in an effort to quantify sports specific performance outcomes but back to the rpe stuff and trim stuff for a second what a lot of research there's i think research is a mis some of the research right now is a misrepresentation of the relationships between rpe and and trim specifically in that what we see a lot of in the literature is all right we collected data um over a course of a season two seasons three it doesn't matter and here's the relationship for all the training and competitions um, between RP and trim. And we'll see like a 0.7, like a Pearson R, uh, Pearson product of 0.7, 0.8, whatever it may be. And a lot of these sports, you play one competition a week. So the practice sessions, you know, you're getting five to one on practice sessions to competitions. And then and no one really breaks that down. So that's, that's an issue because RPE is not trim. They're, they're not the same thing. Right. And when we look at the differences between uh, competition and, and training and the relationships between them, at least for me, they're very different. RP and training, yeah, you get that 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8. There's a really good, really strong relationship there between exercise intensity and, and trim. But when you look at uh, competition, it's very variable and the correlation is very low, which is just an indication that they really aren't the same thing. And when you're looking at the information, you need to consider the context that you're looking at it within. Like we, I don't remember if this was off air or on air that we talked about um, things that could affect competition ratings, like mm. how a player felt like they're playing in a game or how uh, the team performed or a variety of other things. Uh, competition days are just very different than, than training days in, in themselves. The routine is very different. What you put into your body might be very different. Um, so I'm looking at <laughs> coming full circle. I'm looking at RP and Trimp, and now what I'm doing with men's basketball, we're also asking them RPE, except we're not collecting any objective data because um, it's not feasible uh, in in our environment, or it would potentially detract from the psychosocial environment mm -hmm. um, that we have. So we're collecting RPE um, on two different scales: one with colors, one without, to see if colors matter. And we're also asking those players how they felt, how they feel that they're performing but this time in competitions and in uh, training. And I don't have any concrete plan for that data, but 
I don't know whether or not it'll be important when I'm trying to look for relationships or if I see a trend between um, the ice hockey stuff and the basketball stuff. The primary measures there are just those two RP scales that are exactly the same, one with colors, one without, to see if colors matter. What do you anticipate with that? Do you think the colors will matter? No, I, I, no, I don't think, I don't think it matters. Um, but the colors do matter in the sense that, uh, all right, there are a couple things here. Number one is we're a very, Vermont is without a lack, for lack of a better term, it's, 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 it's just a white place, like white people, white culture, pretty much. Um, and we don't know how cross-culturally this will, this will pan out. People make associations with colors, um, and also all these people are are in Vermont too. So you, there may be a common theme there. The cohort is uh, very homogeneous. So who knows? I don't think it'll matter for for this cohort, um, but it would matter. It could matter for other cohorts. Uh, it could matter, um, particularly <laughs> they matter in the sense that um, color blindness, red green color color blindness, is a real thing. Um, I think it's by. I, I'm probably gonna get this totally wrong. I thought it was like one percent. I remember looking it up. It's like five to ten percent, maybe, of people. No, it can't be ten. Maybe like five percent of people have red, red, green color blindness. So it matters certainly for mm. a portion of the of the population. Um, but yeah, I don't think it matters matters too much in the in the big scheme of things. No, that's good stuff, Adam. I'm, I'll be curious. That's awesome. What you yeah. find. I think. I think you haven't kind of having a unique background, you know, being in a professional setting, being in a high performance setting kind of allowed you to answer some really specific questions that you had based on your, your experiences, which a lot of researchers, quite frankly, don't really get necessarily when they start a PhD, you know, they go straight through and they don't, you know, they have these interesting questions, but if they've never really been in the environment before, I think it kind of not necessarily detracts away from the question, but ne- might not necessarily give them the full like breadth of what they're actually looking at or being exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. I mean, I, I think this RP stuff is kind of cool, not, not relating to pro sport at all, but like one of the things that I was reading while I was in the pro sport environment, cause I was seeing a lot of hip stuff with ice hockey players. And then I'm reading a lot about early sports specialization and how that could potentially impact hip function um, later on if you play ice hockey all the time as a, as a kid. And one thing that's interesting to me is this kind of push. Well, now it's kind of being pushed against, but like general, you know, there are incentives to specialize early in sport. Maybe this person will get a scholarship. Um, you know, they'll be, they'll have access to better coaches, better training, a bunch of different things. And one thing that I think is kind of out of whack is that kids, I don't think are really in tune with, or they're not aware of how they're responding um, to training and neither are the coaches and neither are the parents. So having a scale or having a tech, having a scale that's valid and reliable, that's a technology driven type of thing that you could just, as a kid, you can open up an app and type in something and maybe add some gamification to it to make it fun or whatever it may be, um, could give a lot of people insights into what's going on, or at least create awareness of what's going on, um, which could allow for parents, kids, and, and coaches to make um, better formed uh, or more informed decision, uh, decisions in some contexts. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, right. kids, even, even kids, even athletes at higher levels don't necessarily, like you ask them how they feel, and like, good. It's like good all the time. It's like, okay, how do you really feel though? It's like when you start unpeeling some of those layers, I think that's a great point. I was like, athletes don't necessarily 
know how their own body is responding to different stimulus. It's just like, Oh, I feel good. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Adam, before we let you go here, this is kind of a question that we ask all of our guests at the end is what is one practical takeaway that a, a practitioner can, can use from your, your experiences? I think that it's kind of a combination of things, but like collecting data on either I, I see kind of two sides mostly. I mean, there are definitely people in the middle. There are a lot of people in the middle, but there's someone that doesn't collect any data about anything right. or someone that tries to collect data about everything. Right. And I think if you can kind of just, if you're going to start collecting or if you're collecting too much right now that you can't handle, just find the most important thing in, in your context and just collect that thing for a while and understand what the, Worst case scenario is what happens when you don't have the help you normally have? What happens when something crashes and burns and all that stuff? And if you can handle um, consistent data collection with that one thing for a while, then add something else. And I think that the people that are on this side or on the left side that don't collect anything should collect something that's important. And I think the people that are collecting way too much and maybe it's a little bit haphazard and consistent should just take a big step back and say, what's the most important thing? Let me restart and start there and do that for a little bit and see what happens. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's, that's awesome. a great point. Yeah. That's a great, keeping it simple and being able to do it for a long period of time to monitor change will likely give you the best bang for your buck. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Adam, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. I think uh, the listeners will take a lot away from your experiences and I know Harjeev and I will be uh, definitely following up with you and keeping yeah. track of all the stuff you're doing with, uh, the excels, the tutorials and on Twitter and everything. Cause you do a lot of great work there that, that have helped out a lot of sports scientists. So keep it going. Thanks. In there. Thanks man. I appreciate your time. Take care, Adam. Yeah. Thanks for having me on and uh, congrats on the, on the big move. Harjeev, you're, you're almost, you're almost done. I look forward to your <laughs> next steps here too. I'll, I'll, I'm staying in tune with all the things you guys are doing. I'm excited to see what comes next for you guys also. Thanks Adam. Appreciate, appreciate it. it, man.